Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following programme contains strong language and the discussion includes themes of suicide and mental ill health. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, The Galloping Mind, featuring Naomi Arnold, Ashley Young and Wendy Parkins, was chaired by Charlotte Graham Maclay and presented by the Otago University Press. Enjoy. Kia ora tato katoa, I'm called Charlotte Graham Maclay, toku ingoa, and I am thrilled to warmly welcome all of you, and perhaps delightfully more people than I might have expected at 10 on a Saturday morning, <laughs> um, to this Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival event, um, beautifully titled The Galloping Mind and presented by Otago University Press. Um, I might say now, and then I might mention as well at the end, that if you're listening to some of what we're talking about today and you think, oh wow, I think that might be me, Um, and you want to talk to someone, you can actually call 0800 Anxiety, this is true, um, to get connected to services via the New Zealand Anxiety Trust. And there's also a national mental health helpline that you can text by sending a message to 1737. Um, But I'll mention that again at the end, just in case um, anything's come up for anyone. But we hear statistics about mental health, and it seems like we're not always good at picturing the actual human face of it, knowing what the intense fear of anxiety is like. And that's something that the writers and editors we have here today do so well in their work. Mental health is something that has never been more discussed, but stigma remains. Talking about it at work, talking about it with your family, the way it's covered in the news, and the fact that even though we now encourage people, exhort people to reach out for help, help is not always readily available to those who ask. But how much of that social debate are we obliged to carry into our creative practice? And can we write about anxiety without sounding like a public service announcement? Well, we have three writers on stage with me today who can and do, um, but I will introduce everyone that we have here now. Um, Naomi Arnold is the editor of a groundbreaking book in New Zealand, and actually I'd say a groundbreaking book probably anywhere, um, called Headlands, New Stories of Anxiety, which collects stories, experience and articulations of anxiety from a whole range of people, writers and non-writers alike. She's an award-winning journalist, she has hosted podcasts, reviewed books and coordinated the Readers and Writers Program at the Nelson Arts Festival. Ashley Young writes some of the most vivid and precise poetry and prose describing the inside of her head, which she weaves with history, the natural world, and other people's behaviour. I love it very much. Um, she has a new book of poems out this week, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, you sound so surprised. Um, it's called How I Get Ready. Um, and she previously wrote the award-winning essay collection, Can You Tolerate This? She's a book editor and fairly recently a newspaper columnist. Yes, yeah. Um, Wendy Parkins has, I think, the most recently released book by a hair. <laughs> 
The wonderfully titled Every Morning So Far I'm Alive was launched last night, so you can be among the first to own one if you grab one after the session today. It's an honest and searching memoir about how and why to stay alive in the face of anxiety and her own experiences of depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. It's shot through with literature, and Wendy is a former professor of Victorian literature teaching at universities in New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Please join me in welcoming all of them to the stage. I wondered, um, before we actually get into the writing, if perhaps each of you could talk first of all about before you started writing about mental health and, and especially writing about your own mental health, how open were you about it with people that you knew? Is it, is it something that you think people would have known about you? And I know, Naomi, you've written about your husband's mental health as well. Is, is that something that people would have known about the two of you? Yeah. Us. Yeah. Um, yeah, my husband was pretty bad, actually. So he was suicidal, trigger warning. Um, so he, he had a marriage breakup, which led to a lot of um, issues for him that resulted in anxiety and depression and, um, yeah, suicidal ideation. So he um, pretty much had to quit his job and um, get well, which took about three or four years. So... I think everyone kind of knew what was going on and he was having terrible panic attacks, just, you know, daily, couldn't leave the house type situation. So I think people knew and actually one of the worst things was that people got a bit sick of it because it had been years and years that it went on for. So um, some friends and family sort of withdrew and um, he he sort of couldn't get the support that he needed because no one really knew what was going on. Um, no one really knew what a panic attack was or, or how to deal with it and people just sort of said those pop psychology things like, I don't know, attention-seeking and, you know, all those phrases that people use to diminish mental health problems. So um, he was very much, um, it was quite obvious that some, there was, you know, things were going on wrong with him. My anxiety sort of happened in tandem with his because not, neither of us was sleeping and it was extremely stressful. Um, and I don't think I really, I'd always been kind of a highly strung person, I think, but um, that was one of those things, those words that your grandmother uses to describe you, you know, it doesn't really... <laughs> I mean, I remember saying, you're always a tense child. Um, but I don't know if people sort of realise that means sometimes that can deepen into some quite severe um, mental health problems. So um, we, I don't know if people knew that I was having issues. I did quit my job as well and went freelancing but, um, so we could manage the time and sleep better. But, yeah, I don't think we were that open about it because people hadn't really responded that well to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about for you, Ashley, before your mm. essay collection came out, was it something that you had talked to people about? Uh, with a very select yeah. few. Um, but even then, I was, I was quite selective. I was also wary of um, just boring people and wearing out my welcome, sort of using up all of their, you know, their emotional bandwidth, which is the phrase that gets bandied around. Um, I also I was I was often wary of really alarming people yeah. um, when it was very bad um, because I sort of thought that that's a huge weight to to put on someone. Um, so I didn't speak to my parents about it at all. For instance, um, it's only a couple of months ago that I actually talked to them directly about it, um, and my dad told me to take some rescue remedy. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I sort of thought, maybe, yeah, maybe I need to look elsewhere. <laughs> Some support. Um, so how did that work when... So you wrote this book of essays. It was very well-received here in New Zealand, but then it wins a major international prize. You're going to book festivals all over the world to talk about it. Sometimes your parents are coming to watch you talk about it at events. (laughs) And then two months ago, you have the first conversation about it. Was that awkward at all? It really was. Um, In my family, we're very good at talking around things um, to a a profound extent. Um, And... I mean, I think it's sort of an open secret in our family that, that we all struggle, and yet none of us are very good at um, at reaching out to one another. Maybe with the exception of um, my brothers and I have, have a great relationship, which has been hugely meaningful and helpful to me. Um, but yeah, I uh, it's funny because on one hand I have this impulse now um, to... To, to write, a, well, maybe not about it, but to let it be in my writing in various ways. Um, I think anyone who knows knows me, you know, it is quite evident a lot of the time um, that I do struggle with these things. But um, early on, I put a lot of pressure on myself to um, just maintain a calm and collected presence, and I think that made things worse, um, ultimately. Um, yeah, it's uh, but really that, that headline's piece was maybe maybe the second or third essay I'd written that more directly yeah. spoke about it. Um, but even with that, I was nervous. I think there's, there's this illusion that sort of what we confess to is who we are, and especially in, in New Zealand, I think. Um, I mean, that's related to the stigma that's still around these things, but... Um, and so I was worried that I'd just sort of be dismissed as as a, as a nutter, um, which you know at times I definitely feel like I have been. I've felt unsafe um, and just completely chaotic and unhinged. Um, but uh, you know you're you're still a person who has things to contribute, obviously. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's something I probably will, will always write about or it'll always it'll always be there because it's not something you ever completely resolve ever I think mm. it's it's continuing to manage it mm. I'd love to delve a bit more into some of those deliberate deliberate essays a bit a bit <laughs> later on um but I would love to put the same question to you Wendy because you have just written a book link memoir that that shows how interwoven your mental health and mental illness was with all of the other parts of your life that's drawn together really beautifully. Mm. I was saying to you earlier, I I read your book and wanted to move to Matakana because (laughs) she writes the most beautiful, poetic, kind of natural world writing about the scenery and the birds and all this stuff and then also, you know, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm. Um, What... it It seems like people would have known for you that there was something going on, perhaps, but how much did you feel like you could talk about it verbally in the same way that you've ended up talking about it in your writing? Um, well, I think that, similar to what other people have said, not I wasn't very um, open about it generally. Um, and the job that I had, um, you know, having to regularly lecture to hundreds of students, and there's a real sort of public dimension to that sort of academic job and um, 
and I was uh, holding quite a senior senior position, so I, I needed to sort of perform on a daily basis, and I um, managed a lot of the time to compartmentalise things so that I could do I could perform when I needed to, and then sort of go home and fall apart. Um, and particularly anyone who knows. Uh, anything about the behaviours associated with OCD and the sort of rituals involved, you can, part of the way that those rituals function is to try to enable you to keep functioning in a certain way um, and to a certain degree. So there's also, and I describe some of the ways of sort of masking the, the OCD stuff. And so I think I had become... Yeah, pretty expert at how to fall apart but keep things on the surface, um, looking like things were okay if you didn't look too closely. <laughs> As a reader, because your book delves into so much of the literature in, in kind of memoir genre around mental health, um, were you kind of peering into the, into the faces of these memoirists, kind of looking for people who were like you, who, who were functional and holding down a job? And, and were, were you looking for accounts of people who had managed to seemingly hold it together? I think it's a bit like, you know, when you're pregnant, suddenly you realise the world is full of pregnant women. You know, that's all you see. <laughs> and so it was whatever I read, I would think that, oh, I think they're really suffering from OCD. You know, you start to develop a radar for it um, and whether that's kind of wishful thinking. And also, as someone who whose life revolves around literature, you do very much... Um, well, I, I felt very drawn to writers like Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath, even at the same time thinking, it's such a cliché, you know? <laughs> Every woman who feels she's slightly unhinged yeah. thinks that she might secretly be... Virginia Woolf, you know, under the right under the right circumstances, and maybe, you know, is it is and that whole sort of genius madness thing, which is so powerful and can be very enabling, but also very disabling. So it was it was more that whatever I read, I could see links and some things that I found really nourishing and helpful and sustaining, and other things that kind of flagged that this was a slippery slope that things could get even worse. So. Um, yeah. yeah, it was more that sort of general, the world of literature presents that to you in various ways rather than... I did read a lot of memoirs of other people who'd been through breakdowns um, and some of them were great and some of them I found really boring. But it, it was that sense of wanting to find whatever you could to draw on and to, um, yeah, shed some light on what you were experiencing because it can be so isolating. Mm-hmm. Did anyone have like a, a, a predicating incident that made them think, I actually want to write about this now. Or, or in, the case of, in the case of you, Naomi, I think I'm going to collate an entire book of stories about anxiety. <laughs> was, was there something that, that gave you a, a, a push or a boost? or a... That idea came after we'd got through the worst of it. And I, I just wonder if, looking back on it, it was sort of... Um, because while we were in it, I wrote a few personal essays about what we were going through while sort of being in it, which led people, I, I, I hear now, say, is Naomi okay? You know, like around various friend groups around the country. Did they say it to you or no, just to they, each other? No, they're telling me now that they were saying yeah. it to each other. Some people are talking about me. Awesome. Um, but 
I, I just wasn't aware of what was going on while I was in it, and so I wrote a few things and then sort of came to regret those later because they're a bit too sort of open or whatever. But um, the book idea came after we'd been through everything and we were actually just sick of it. We were sick of talking about it, we were sick of therapy, we were sick of the Google links, you know, and, and um, you know, the books and have you tried this and this, and it was a way to look outwards at what other people had um, had gone through. So it was like, once we're done with the internal stuff, it's like, okay, well, what is this like? What is this thing? Because we didn't really know what anxiety was um, um, until, yeah, even going through the book, I started to realise what anxiety was. You know, as all the essays came in, I started to get a better idea of what it was. So it was very much, um, we're done with ourselves, we're sick of ourselves, and what is this thing like for other people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if there was a... a predicating event as such but I mean not to be too maudlin but at my lowest I just felt very very isolated and alone and um, I think part of that was the effect of being very selective with uh, the the things I told people I was close to Um, and I just had this real craving to um, to reach out uh, and and the only way I knew how to do that was was in writing um, and so, yeah, I just started very slowly and in a very oblique manner. Um, but it started to feel a little safer as I went. And I, I was really astonished by how kind people were. You know, uh, I wasn't savaged or, um, <laughs> it was, um, yeah. And it, it sort of gave me courage in other parts of my life as well to, hmm. um, just reveal a little bit more. Um, yeah, I, I think the thing with, uh, anxiety and, and depression as well of course is that it makes your world feel incredibly small um, and the world feel incredibly overwhelming um, often there's this uh, I started reading this uh, book by Eckhart Tolle um, who's like the, this quite famous spiritual teacher um, it's the one called The Power of Now and his theory was that um, feelings like anxiety and fear and apprehension they're all kind of an accumulation of um, too much future, whereas um, feelings like grief and remorse and guilt are all accumulations of too much past and not enough present. Um, but I actually felt I felt like my anxiety was too much present. Like, <laughs> it was far too much present, just flooding in and assaulting me. And maybe writing about it just allowed me to not only to frame it, but also to move out into the world a little bit more. Um, one of the other things that really helped me was going on long walks and taking really bad photos of flowers and <laughs> bees on the flowers. Like just, <laughs> it just something about that simple task really quieted my mind and just allowed me to manage the world um, for a short period of time, and then I could withdraw again, like a snail, and um, feel that I'd been out in the world for a brief moment. Yeah. I, I did have a predicating event, um, uh, and I describe it in the book that um, after I'd really hit rock bottom when, for me, it was uh, really overwhelming depression, and I couldn't, I couldn't read. You know, I went. It was very difficult trying to teach when I couldn't read anything. I couldn't read a newspaper article. I just could not focus um, on a page in front of me and. You know, and that was just so, that was as devastating as the depression because that is sort of a big part of my identity. You know, give me something to read and I just feel alive and that's where I'm at home if I'm reading a book. 
So, um, and I describe in, in the memoir, you know, when I realised I needed help and started to try, while I was living in England, to access different kinds of therapy and, and trying different approaches. And the first point of call was um, medication. And for anybody who is familiar with the sort of uh, SSRI and medication, you'll know that it takes, it can take quite a while to kick in. So um, after several months, I felt that I could start to read again. And at the same time, um, just but very slowly, I was seeing it. I was referred um, to a therapist who um, whose big thing was narrative. And he used to talk about, you know, life is a journey. So every session he would, um, in the book I call him the journeyman because Every session was life is a journey. Tell me about your journey. You know where have you been? Where are you going? And um, and I think now I would yeah just have that reaction instantly. But but he was actually the best person that I'd seen for several months. So I did stick with him for a while. And he kept saying, you know, tell me about your narrative. And and finally I had enough of him, but also thought. Right, I'm going to write my narrative. You know, I'm not going to share it with you because you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> but I'm going, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to start writing this story. And I really did start because I felt that certainly professionally nobody was listening to me and nobody was helping. So I would just tell myself this story and you know take it from there. And it really was very literally became a form of self help. You know, I was helping myself through through writing the story. So it very, it very much was writing it while I was still immersed in it because it took several years to write. So I sort of came out the other end and was still writing it. But it very much started when I was in the middle of it and not knowing if I was going to recover properly. I might jump on that point about therapy because all three of your books have have depictions of what it is like to go to therapists or counsellors or to be in therapy. And in fact, you have a story in yours about going to someone and you say something like, almost immediately I knew it was a mistake. (laughs) And I snorted with delight in a cafe because we've, we've all been there. But because we do not talk about therapy at all in the society and what it's meant to be like, you, as an anxious person, think, oh, I'm terrible at therapy as well. <laughs> Everything else. Like, this is all on me. Um, and some therapists are just not very good at their jobs. But I didn't know that for years. Like, I blamed myself. I thought I was immune to therapy. <laughs> so, so can you talk a bit about how deliberately those decisions were to either write or to show in your books what, what the acts of actually getting help might be? look like, whether it's helpful help or non-helpful help? Mm. Well, one of the things I worried about with, with my book was that on reflection, it, therapy doesn't come out of it very well. And, um, and maybe if I'd had better therapy, I wouldn't have written the book. <laughs> but, um, but the problem with that is that, you know, this was not my first breakdown. You know, this is not my first time at the rodeo, as, as Americans <laughs> like to say. And... Um, In previous breakdowns, um, I'd had some excellent therapy and I had some really good, uh, I'd done some very good sort of programs and I had some really incredibly wise 
compassionate therapist. This time around, I just lucked out. I didn't find, I don't know whether that was being in England, um, and then, you know, part of it was back in New Zealand. I didn't have a very successful um, experience here either. But I just, I just, for whatever reason, couldn't find it. So that's one thing that worries me, that the book might give a sort of negative view of therapy, and that I would say that's only that phase of my life, but, you know, earlier um, experiences were, were quite literally life-saving. So it's, it's, mm. it's a mixed bag, but I think that's important to, for people to know that, that it's not them, it might be the therapist. And that's why now I can walk into a therapist's office and I can know straight away if this is going to work or not because, you know, I've seen a few. <laughs> Was that something that you were really trying, trying to get a range of experiences across in Headlands? Because it's not just people talk about therapy, they talk about even down to specific medications, which is really cool, like this is what citalopram's mm. like, this is what this is like. Was that a very conscious editing decision? For you? Mm, not so much. One of them, because we were on the editorial team, there was mm. sort of four or five of us who were working on it and gathering them and editing them and dealing with the 32 writers. So that, getting a broad range of experiences was really important in terms of not all having the same um, demographic of person writing about therapy. You know, it was um, because there's a whole range of ways that people deal with what they've got in there and definitely a range of therapy experiences. Paula Harris's piece talks about... Um, a therapist who was sort of so, well, a psychotherapist really, like a medical, yeah, who was so bad for her that he com- com- committed her, is that the word? Section, mm. Yeah, section, mm. sectioned her, yeah. Um, and that was devastating for her. Mm. She ended up in, um, you know, the secure unit, to think of what, you know, what just happened. Mm. Um, but she's now with someone who she loves and is really good for her. So, <laughs> yeah, even accessing the therapy is difficult because obviously yeah. it costs $130 or whatever mm. to go to someone and then to get referred can take months and months um, or years to even get through that barrier to, to actually see someone on the health system. Did you encourage people to be specific, though? Not really. It was very um, much... Pretty much all I said to them was just tell us, go away and write inside. It was, we want to know what's going on inside your head and also how that fits within the wider social um, scene of anxiety and mental health and what you've experienced out in the world. I think I said writing inside and outside your head. I had some phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, they basically, we just said, go and go and write about it, you know, 2,000 words, and they came back and they had all these amazing, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Just they brought all these different things back and we were just kind of gobsmacked, mm-hmm. just getting them in and thinking, oh, this is incredible, you know, they've just mm-hmm. let loose. Um, and then a lot, a lot of them, people then retracted or didn't want to do it or we had to rearrange stuff and there are a few people who just got to the last, last minute and said, I just can't do this um, because it was too much. But it was. Tell me about that. How did you deal uh, with that yeah. process? Um, there are a few people I really, really wish we had, who had gone through with it, but for whatever reason, it, but they couldn't at that time. But um, was it that they, What was it that they were worried yeah. about? Well, specifically, one woman, um, she was writing from a Māori perspective about health and um, she, um, she didn't feel safe in the end because she was still learning about... Um, how the Māori world saw mental health and she didn't want to represent it to everyone. You know, she felt like a representative of, of being Māori and that, that's um, one of the themes that came through in the book was that uh, people feel like if they're in there, they're saying this is the only way that my culture is with this thing and that they felt that burden very strongly. So um, she wanted to work with a Māori co-editor like, quite early on to sort of to work through those issues, but she didn't sort of feel want to do it with a bunch of Pākehā editors, mm. which is fair enough. Mm. Um, but she's she's still writing. She's a, a brilliant writer, so she's still exploring it on her own terms. But 
Um, so that was one thing. And then other people, I think I, think I ended up maybe having about 100, 100 people or 70 people that we were talking with. And then we got about 42 in and then chose mm. 31, um, 32 writers, 31 essays. So um, a lot of people, just, we just never heard from them. I would email, call. Hi, mm. hi, how are you going? Hi, just just checking in to see, and just nothing. And we never heard from them again, and they probably feel awful about and it. I was about to say, <laughs> they are still thinking know, about that now. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting, because in terms of the, the representation of stories of anxiety, like, again, to break the fourth wall a moment, probably everyone on the stage is who you would think of as the kind of mainstream idea of someone who has anxiety. You know what I mean? Not to yeah. put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a super, we're not super representative. Yeah. And, and in some ways it is, even though it's still hard, it is easier for people who, who look and appear a certain way to tell those stories. Yeah. And I know that's something you found a real challenge. Do you think there are things you could have done at the outset of that yeah. project to get a more diverse range of stories? Yeah, I didn't realise. I mean, I was pretty ignorant, to be honest, like, um, about how anxiety manifests in different segments of the population because I really only had my experience and my white friend's experience. Um, and then we'll go into that a little bit in the introduction, but one of um, someone I approached who was, um, I think she's of Chinese and Korean descent, said, the only people I know who have anxiety, like, all my friends are anxious, but the only people I know who are on psychiatric medication are my white friends. You know, everyone else mm-hmm. sort of dealt with it within their own cultures in certain ways. And Ricky Gooch has a really great um, interview with Kirsten McDougall in, in there where he says if he didn't have his position of being a top musician in New Zealand, the Trinity Roots, he would be um, in prison or dead uh, because mm-hmm. it, it being a Māori man, he's from, Dine- he's from Dunedin, isn't he? Yeah, he, um, you know, it... He just didn't feel, well, it's not that he didn't feel, it's that it was difficult for him to access that care because of, mm. you know, because of everything. Um, so it took the poet Glenn Colhoun to say to him, you know, I think you have mental health problems or, you know, go and see this doctor. And Ricky says that he was very privileged in that way to actually have that access. Um, so there's a whole, I mean, it's difficult for me to say as a Pākehā person, but... Um, there are a range of limiting factors that I really wasn't aware of when I started this about even labelling what they have as anxiety or a mental illness and then accessing care as a whole other thing. So, yeah, it was a good learning experience. And if I'd done it again, I would have um, done it with a like a Māori co-editor or, mm-hmm. you know, people of, I would have got a whole group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I didn't realise that people wouldn't feel sort of culturally safe submitting to a bunch of Pakia mm. publishers. And you yeah. made the decision a wee way into that process to to put out an active call for... Yeah, yeah. yeah so not to just invite people, but yeah. to... Yeah, just please, everyone, just send me your stories. Thanks, I yeah. And if that's you, because I emailed about 70 people of you know, various um, writing persuasions and said, mm. um, please pass this on to anyone you think may want to contribute. And if that's you, then please send us an essay too, because I sent it to a few people who thought might probably have anxiety. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, Ashley, I want to ask you about your essay, Ghost Knife, which is in mm. Headlands. Um, it was also, it was published somewhere online, right? Because yeah, it was picked up by The Cut, which yes. is um, a sort of a magazine-y part of uh, New York magazine. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they actually re- edited it quite a bit um, oh, in, really? in the end. Okay. But yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think it's Probably fine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took probably out, fine. They, they, they took out some <laughs> bits that I quite w- w- was fond of, but yeah. Yeah. it's, it's great. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, I remember it must have been online because I remember reading it. It's a, it's an essay about about a repetitive, violent, mm. intrusive thought. Would, mm. Yeah, um, and and the kind of process that you went through to try and figure out what that was and and why basically, and and what mm. could be done about it. Um, and I know it must have been online because I remember reading it in bed at like five a.m. on my phone <laughs> and kind of like hissing to my husband when he woke up, like Ashley Young's written an essay about my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember it was so it was such a such a powerful read because it's one of those things that you don't that you don't hear talked about much. It's a specific subset of anxiety that you don't that you mm-hmm. don't hear talked about. Um, and I wondered with something like that, where you're talking about a very specific part of your anxiety, how you figure out what it is that you want to say about it mm. and how you balance what you're wanting to say about this kind of anxiety with wanting the writing to be good. Do you know what mm. I mean? Because every, every sentence you write is so deliberate and precise. Mm. What I, what kind of negotiation were you going through when you were writing that? Yeah, um, and maybe it's a slightly shallow response, but um, so that the the the, the repeat, repeating thought that I had was basically <laughs> of a knife stabbing my face, um, and uh, and I, I still have this, um, but I sort of and. I sort of thought, well, that's a really interesting image. Like from from a writer's perspective, I could describe that um, in in a compelling way. And that's yeah, I felt conflicted about that. I sort of thought, am I exploiting you know this horrible thing that I, this compulsion, this compulsive thought that I have, um, sort of, and making it sound you know interesting? And am I am I glamorizing this ridiculous thought? Anyway, I just I went with it, um, but it, it became something that I could hang a lot of uh, a lot of discussion on, I suppose. But the essay is just me trying to f- going to a lot of different um, specialists of various kinds and asking what they thought about it um, with varying degrees of success. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm not sure really if I arrived at at any particular answer. Um, I read a lot of, of. I became really interested in how intrusive thoughts and and OCD have been um, understood and, and studied throughout history. So I, I read a lot, a lot of sort of early twentieth century case studies um, of people with uh, really uh, just overwhelming intrusive thoughts. Um, and and yeah, and in some cases that sort of fed into other things that I was writing. Um, but yeah, I, I I still feel a little bit conflicted about how I um, reduced a lot of things that were happening internally for me at the time down to this single image um, and then tried to just understand that. Um, in a way, I mean, I didn't want to overwhelm the reader. I also didn't want to alarm anyone um, who, again, um, who anyone I knew who may have been reading it. So, um, yeah, I actually got I got quite a few responses to it, I had one woman email me and say, "It sounds like you need to have some past life therapy um, and some myofascial release." <laughs> so yeah, all these kinds of interesting suggestions. Um, Did you do anything? No. Well, in some cases, I'd tried a lot of them. Right. Yeah. Um, people were saying, "Oh, you just need a really good like scalp massage." Um, so and, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there were a lot of people who just. Uh, 
who were quite dismissive, actually. Mm. They were like, this is what this is. Um, you just need to do this. And, um, yeah, I found that interesting in itself, mm. just that people felt like it was easy to, um, to, to label what to me was a, is a, um, a very overwhelming and disturbing and, yeah, it's something that makes me think, God, like, there's something profoundly wrong with me. Yeah. Um, but going through the process of talking to lots of people about it um, definitely softened that, um, yeah. that, that fear. And I think yeah. that was why it was so powerful. It was because it was the kind of thing that a lot of us, obviously, were sitting there thinking, well, that's the actual crazy thing that we should never tell anyone about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you said it, so it was, yeah. <laughs> so it was there. Um, I wondered, this, this might lead into, you know there's been that debate in the past few years about personal essay and memoir, and it seems to have died down a bit now, but about whether there was a lot of kind of faux concern a few years ago about young people oversharing on the internet about their mental health and whether there was any actual value in that as essay writing or whether it was just, you know, editors exploiting them for clicks or that sort of thing. But it seems like there is, there is a value in experience, right? And, and like hearing about experience. And so I just wondered where you all came down on that because you know, we tell young writers that you can't write until you have something to say. You need to know, you know, the question you're answering or what you're saying in this piece or we give feedback that, that you know, it doesn't really seem like you know what, what you're saying in this piece. Mm. And quite often with mental health, we don't know, right? So, so where do you sit in terms, of, in terms of the importance of having a clear kind of thesis or thing that you're saying versus the value of pure experience? I mean, for you as an academic, that must have been something you've thought about with your memoir, right? Uh, yeah, I did think about it, but I also tried not to think about it. And mm. it partly goes back to what I was saying before, that because I started to write it when I was in the midst of the experience, yes. that I really, um, certainly until I was much further down the road to recovery, I wasn't sort of reflecting critically on it at all. Mm. I was mm. just needed to, to write this down. And the more I wrote, because writing about it, made me feel better than anything else I was doing. So I just wanted to keep writing. And it was only with sort of subsequent drafts and when, you know, I showed bits to a few friends and they said they encouraged me to turn it into a book. And I started to think, well, if it's a book, it has to have, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. And so I, uh, that, that led to more of that uh, reflection. But I guess it just was... I wanted to um, tell a story, but I didn't want it to be like a lot of memoirs I'd read, which, you know, sort of miraculously about two-thirds of the way through there completely recover, <laughs> and um, and that was it. And, and I didn't think it was that tight. That wasn't my experience with being that tidy, that you deal with these things and you have the treatment and then you live happily ever after. So I wanted there to be a kind of unresolved element to it but I didn't want it to be bleak yeah. in that sense so because you do you do want to I did want to say that there is hope but um, yeah it's it's that balance isn't it between being honest about the experience and how awful it is and how some bits get better and other bits you just kind of learn to live with um, but yeah, so that sense of a kind of social responsibility that you have for anything that you publish yeah. um, that goes out into the world, um, 
that's that's really hard. But I know that um, my my feeling is that the more people write about mental health, the more different perspectives, the more different stories there are. We'll stop having the we'll stop asking these, on individuals. these yeah, kinds yeah, of yeah, questions yeah. because it'll just become part of this kind of very rich tapestry of here's this huge range of human experience yeah. of, of all these different forms of pain and suffering and ways that people have dealt with it and. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, individually, we'll stop feeling such a burden like, you know, well, what will people take from my particular story? Mm. Because that story is just one of so many stories, which is mm. why Headlands is mm. such a valuable yeah. collection. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was just thinking, I recently signed, signed up to a journalist story collecting service that collects all of the work you've ever done and lists it um, for some sort of landing page for your, you know, um, self-employed business and there are about 700 articles and a good proportion of those by you yeah and a good proportion of those are columns I wrote about six or seven years ago that I wish I could just wipe from the face of the earth because they're awful and everything I thought was awful and dumb you know how you think about yourself sort of Mm. 10 years ago some really stupid opinions and um and I had also started exploring mental health in those and anxiety and um my first one was after I went paragliding and started blacking out. Um, and then said, I think we'd better land because I was sort of getting all circles and feeling sick and stuff. Yeah. But that was my first sort of panic attack anxiety column. And I just really wish that just was not there anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, as, a, as a person who believes in um, everything being open and everyone talking about everything, basically, I still think it's valuable that it's sort of still there and I still did it. But um, I, yeah, a lot, I've... You always regret writing about mental health, but um, you just kind of have to live with the fact that it's just there and that was where you were at that time. Um, and, you know, I think different things now and I've, you know, matured a lot and then in another 10 years I will hate everything I'm writing now. So yeah. you just... Yeah. Always a great thought. I mean, yeah. yeah, like you just have to... It's like your chapter heading, Bloom, where you're planted. Yes. Yeah. In your book. Um, you just have to work with what you've got at the moment and then regret everything for the rest of your life. <laughs> but it will speak to somebody at some point, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Even though I was an idiot in 2009. Who so. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't? Weren't we all? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I find this question tricky of, um, uh, you know, when there's a piece that has no... Um, when there's a piece that has a lot of uncertainty and, and no resolution in it. I mean, on one hand, I can see the, the enormous value in people writing about their experiences. Uh, the reader in me always wants a story and wants a narrative, and mental illness often does not behave in that way. Um, people's lives don't behave in that way. Um, yeah, I, I keep thinking about this book I recently read called The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, and um, I mean, it doesn't... Um, really overtly deal with anxiety but um, the story is that the, the narrator um, the novel is written as, as an address to um, a friend of hers who has killed himself um, a professor so it's a kind of epistolary project um, she ends up taking in this great dane of his this old big old dog in her tiny tiny apartment um, very reluctantly. She's a cat person. She doesn't like how dogs <laughs> demand devotion. You know, she wants an animal that can take care of itself. Um, but she has a great deal of fear and concern for this dog because the dog is grieving. Um, you know, it's howling at night. And obviously you can't explain to a dog what death is and that its owner is never coming back. Um, so she has this this concern for the dog that she can only communicate in, in a certain way. Um, there's also 
she acknowledges there's the reader's fear that something terrible is going to happen to the dog. Um, and she talks about all these other novels where terrible things happen to the dog. And that was my fear reading that we were just on the verge of some awful thing happening to the dog. Um, but it never does. And there's just this great tenderness. And um, she there's just a scene of her sort of grooming the dog and looking after it and it, as it's as it's aging. Um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but yeah. um, I sort of um, it's it's I think it's the only novel I've read where the writer directly addresses the reader's anxiety for her characters, um, and and somehow soothes soothes them. Um, because often it goes the other way, you know, you end up traumatised by, uh, and I've read so many novels with dogs in them that yeah. <laughs> have ended terribly, yeah, yeah. to the point where if a dog a gun. appears in a book, I don't want to read it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and this, and this, it's not just, yeah. not just dogs, right? And that, and that oh. like, with this, with this conversation, mm. that, that the number of books that have someone killing themselves as the climax two-thirds of the way yes. through, and that comes out of nowhere that you that it just seems like a a shorthand for people in terms of in terms of a climax i mean do you think when we're writing non-fictionally about these things do you think there's a social responsibility or yeah i do yeah 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 and that's the burden that the writer has Mm. to take on Mm. um I mean, you have to understand your story is you know obviously just one of many um um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think as Wendy was saying, the the more stories there are, the the easier it becomes for for others to to tell theirs. Um, but yeah, even I mean, I do see a, a bit of a shift away from um, confessional. I mean, I have problems with that word, but confessional yeah. f- first person pieces that maybe f- maybe five years ago there seemed to be just a plethora mm. everywhere you looked. Um, you know, every online platform had a special sort of it happened to me section um but i can't help but feel that what's what with um climate change and trump and brexit there's necessarily a moving outward and a looking outward and people trying to make sense together of maybe not together um of of what's happening in our world and how we manage our own internal anxieties um when we look at this chaos basically um so yeah i just i just sense a bit of a shift in um, in, in writing about ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Do, picking up on that, do we think it feels like the world is getting more anxious, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, not, it's and because I, the future is becoming bigger. Or it feels more menacing. <laughs> it, it feels like anxiety is a more and more common problem. Like, you're not surprised anymore when someone tells you that they have anxiety. Mm. Or, um, and, it, and it's 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 academically true as well. This I was talking to this guy Thomas Curran from Bath University who studies perfectionism, and he was saying that there has been a huge generational rise in perfectionism among kind of people around our age and younger. That it has, um, and and that then quite often leads to or triggers kind of anxiety disorders and depression and that kind of thing. And everybody thinks that their generation had a lot of pressures, right? But mm-hmm. that they've demonstrably shown that these these anxious perfectionistic tendencies are increasing in mm-hmm. in, in younger people as, as time goes by. Mm-hmm. Um, have you given much thought to it on a on a societal scale about why we suddenly have 
both these discussions about anxiety and this anxiety that just seems so constantly present in the mm. in the public conversation. Is it? Um, yeah, I think looking at the world today, if you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you, really. Yeah. Because how? I mean. <laughs> Like just climate change in and of itself is going to change everything we hold to be normal very very soon and um, you know potentially even worse than oh god I'm just getting really <laughs> I'll ask something hopeful after this I'll think it's something like, it, really, for it. it really is going to change everything and yeah. we've all seen in the last you know five to ten years um, I've been reporting on climate change since I started as a journalist I was an environment reporter mm. and I would do these big front page stories nothing would happen you know pic- Mel- picture of Nelson flooding nothing no reaction you know and now it seems like people are starting to see it in their own backyards in terms of wasps mm. and um, you know pests and, and odd flowerings at odd times of the year I and mean, uh, surges storm surges and flooding and no water and drought and it just seems like it's become much more accepted that this is actually happening now um, and that I mean should I have children you know like that's actually a really valid question that I have gone over for the last five years like you know what's going to happen? Will we even have? Oh God, I'll stop. But, <laughs> will we even have an economy? But yeah, 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 we have legitimate reason to be really anxious about yeah, the next yeah. five, ten, thirteen, fifteen. That yeah. that people who, even those of us who were not already predisposed, yeah, yeah, it could start feeling. Yeah, and yeah. that's not even touching on social housing anxiety. I mean, mm. yeah, yeah, all the other mm. stuff that's going on. Mm. Yeah, mm. instability, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think also. I mean, it's impossible not to mention just how much more visible our lives can be and shareable yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah. social media and, and that creates an enormous amount of does. pressure as well um, if you yeah if you allow it into your into your life in a certain way and, and of course a lot of young people really do and it's central um, and yeah I'm, I'm divided about the the various helpfulnesses and um, and burdens of yeah of social media yeah but yeah. I think it is pretty huge and um, yeah, creating those anxieties. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw it open to questions in a second, but um, before that, I did want to ask, and I promised that I would ask something hopeful, Wendy, in your book. <laughs> um, you, it seems like it's, for a lot of people, writing can be quite anxiety-inducing, just like public speaking can or whatever. And it seems like for you, writing has helped you to reframe things or 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 come alongside your anxiety in a yeah. way that that for you sounded quite hopeful throughout your book would is, is that a fair assessment yes um that was that was the the big revelation was that just how therapeutic writing was that um you know, I was used to a particular form of writing in my career, um, you know, scholarly writing. I stopped being able to do that, like I stopped being able to read. Um, but this was different. This this was writing that felt completely different. And it just, it. I've never experienced anything like that before, where just the act of writing, even if it was rubbish, um, but to write without the sort of pressures of CV building or the... the the usual way I would approach writing if it was anything to do with my job, um, it just felt so freeing and um, it gave me so much pleasure at a time when most other things weren't, weren't giving me any pleasure. So it was, I mean, I would really like if people can see that in the book, that just the act of writing, if people would sort of read the book and then go and write their own story, you know, because it's just, I've always loved reading and and certain kinds of writing and I guess I've always been a frustrated creative writer but um 
it's it was ju- it just gave me so much pleasure just to sit down and write and not know what was going to be on the page, you know, or how it, five hours could go by. And, you know, whereas if I was writing a scholarly article or something, it would be like blood out of a stone, you know, and all the research and all the footnotes had to be accurate and to be so careful about what you said. And this was just whatever was in my head. <clears throat> I, I was allowed to just, you know, put it on paper, whether that ever saw the light of day or not was another thing. But, yeah, the, just the writing process was so... It was like a breath of fresh air mm. for me. Mm. Um, I'm going to ask if anyone has any questions. Um, are there any questions? Otherwise, excellent. Hi. <laughs> I'm currently in therapy for the second time. Um, the first time resulted in a book of contributor stories about an issue that was very shameful. Um, and I noticed while I was writing it, I would carry the, my resource materials around without the title showing. Um, uh, I went out, went on living my life, and now I've gone back into therapy because of a whole range of problems, including my husband's death. And um, I've got back to the stuff behind the original work, and um, that was childhood neglect. And it's led me to therapy now, which I'm having enormous trouble coping with, and I've got shame coming out of every single pore of me um, because all these mental health problems, all these issues, all these difficulties in life have intrinsic shame, yet alone the shame you received in your early childhood. And I believe anxiety has got a lot to do, do with this. Um, and shame is something we dare not talk about. We dare not actually be ashamed of our mental issues because... It's much better to stand on the stage or write a book than be ashamed. Um, and I don't think I've really got to the nitty-gritty of shame yet. Um, last night, I and another writer, a very profound writer, were talking about this problem. And I was trying to visualise what shame was. I was thinking about your prob- problem with your knife in your face. And, and I've got mental images of all kinds of things of shame. And she's got an umbrella and... Um, I haven't, I haven't personally heard this, seen this written in writing. I know a lot of therapeutic stuff about shame, but nothing about the. Yeah. Have, have you read shame? Brene Brown's book on shame? Have, have you read of it? Brene a new Brown's Netflix special book on yes. art oh, on shame. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. come and find it's so some. Yeah. Good. Yes, it's yes. so good. Yes. Yeah. Has yeah. anyone has anyone had an example of dealing with either the the shame of having written about it or the shame of it having been been received in a particular yeah, way? Is that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I feel shame over everything I've written about mental health. I've been a couple of times, but yeah. you just cringe when you think of yeah, people yeah. reading it. Um, so how, what, you just what do you there. do with that? Um, Ashley's going to... Oh, no, 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 you oh, um, <laughs> you just You just accept that's where you were and you just... Well, it's just the tools of getting over a mental health problem is just yeah. that was where I was that's okay it doesn't say anything mm. about you personally like mm. everything it's everyone else's issue you know you just sort of mm. all the tools you learn when you're trying to deal with your head you just mm. apply it to whatever circumstance comes up that's a really uncomfortable feeling you just learn to deal with those with this I think a similar set of tools but I love Brene Brown's book it was brilliant yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah she actually I, I just watched her amazing Netflix special okay. yeah. about vulnerability and for the first time I thought well shame um does you know it can be a gateway to being really vulnerable with yourself and with others um and that can um be a great force of connection and um and creativity as well mm. um 
but yeah, it's huge. I, I think shame um, kind of infuses so many of the choices we make, especially if you had a really difficult childhood and you have, you know, what they call core shame, where you mm. just feel apologetic for existing. Existing. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. 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 Um, okay. Um, are there any other questions? Okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> no um, shame. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no apologies. Okay, so we've got one down there and got one there. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for that. That was really awesome. And my question, I guess, is, it, is about why it's taken us so long to realise the therapeutic value of actually discussing these issues. Like, it just seems so obvious now and it's so helpful to people Whereas, you know, the, when I grew up, it didn't get discussed and people would die rather than discuss these issues. And, and yet now you guys are so much part of the uh, solution and the solution is as simple as actually um, articulating these these things that people didn't talk about for years. And it, it's just, I guess, it's just progress, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on why it's taken us so long to arrive at such an obvious solution. Yeah, growing up, I saw my two aunties last night who live in the area, and one of them was in Cherry Hill, Cherry Farm, Cherry Farm, mm-hmm. um, and that was the big family secret. And the other one had schizophrenia, big family secret, you know. And now they come and see me coming to an event talking quite happily about, and they're just kind of dumbfounded, like they're in their 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. and it was so debilitating for them their entire lives, and they've felt so much shame over it all. But um, I, I actually don't know. I don't know why we talk more about it now. Is it New Zealand's growing up? The consequences, more is this, changed, the consequences are less. Yeah. We've got um, a but much still more there, caring... Yeah. Do we have a more caring culture? Like, Have we got rid of some of the macho crap that New Zealand was imbued with for so long? I Do actually, we feel more now like mental health isn't a personal like virtue failing? It's actually just a yeah, chemical It's a upset. medical problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, is that more research? Did it, when did it get into the... D, the DV, the DVM, the DSM, DSM. Yeah. DSM D, I was going to say DMV. When did you know? <laughs> That's where you get your driver's yeah. license in America. Um, <laughs> when did? Yeah, I don't actually know much about the medical history of yeah. when things began to be accepted as a um, you know, health problem. Mm. Rather yeah. than yeah. yeah, was it getting people out of the institutions into a community space that ha- that happened? That big health change or? But it's a good it question. Like, I actually don't. It's a huge yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, yeah. yeah, I just remember growing up with this, these whispered conversations about, you know, schizophrenia and Jerry Farm. Yeah. 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 I remember in my town, um, the, the nearest mental health facility was Tokanui, mm. and just that word had such stigma and just horror attached to it. And a friend of mine, um, was there for um, a, f- a few months, and yeah, it, w- it was just kind of awful. He just, when he was out, there seemed to be this aura of, um, you, you know, you shouldn't speak to him. Um, he just, mm. he seemed infinitely damaged, mm. um, which of course wasn't true, but just that stigma was so powerful yeah. that um, someone could just seem to be irrevocably, yep. um, mm. you know, of no use anymore. Mm. Broken, um, yeah. And I'm, I'm so happy and relieved that that has, that, you know, to a, to an extent, a, a large extent, that has changed. Yeah, maybe hey, we do have John Kerwin to thank. You know, yeah, maybe it's yeah, all down yeah. to him and yeah, Mike King. Um, now there was okay. We have one more, and I know I'd said to you earlier that oh, sorry, that was me. Go, that no, time. that was me before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, I'm just wondering about our stigma around um, medication because yeah, um, okay. personally for me, um, I've been, yeah, a lot of people say it's bad to put drugs into your body and why would you need to do that? And um, I've been to my doctor and talked about it and they really didn't want to prescribe anything. And um, yeah, um, so yeah, just there, there's yeah. No having shame. something to yeah. trust, it, it, yeah, doesn't. Mm. I don't like doing it. I don't want to yeah. do it, but I probably need to. And I, yeah. yeah, just sleep would be a good thing to be able to get <laughs> exactly. on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. yeah Was it, it quite deliberate for all of you to mention to talk about medications in yes. your work? Yeah, yeah. yeah you mm. need you need to strip away the shame of it. Yeah, it just comes absolutely. up over and over. Yeah. Some people. Um, it, it takes a really long time to figure out what's going to help you as well, and mm. medication can just help you. Just get over the hump of the, um, the the trauma that's going on, and just sort of start to um, you know go to therapy and learn some other coping skills. And you may be on it for the rest of your life. You may oh, you've recently come off it, haven't you? And found that I really challenging. <laughs> it was awful. I, I had to come back on, but I yeah. felt um, after six months, where I felt a tremendous amount of shame and, yeah. and almost grief as well for having to go back on medication because I couldn't I couldn't cope without it. Um, and yeah, I think like you, I, I just have never liked the idea of putting um, these things into my system. Also, really don't like the side effects, which for me are quite profound. Um, but I had to weigh that against the benefits, which are just immeasurable. You know, I can I can function. I'm not constantly sobbing and mm-hmm. <laughs> raging and throwing furniture around. It got very bad. Yeah. Um, and I'm really grateful to that. And and getting yeah. sleep is huge. Like getting no sleep one's is huge. Saying oh, you if have to. Sleeping. You have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that will, and within two days you'll be just yeah. in a pit. You know, <coughs> yeah. so that was what killed both both of our jobs. We just yeah. couldn't sleep. And luckily, mm. but um, I mean, I take hay fever medication every day. Well, what, why is that not a problem? You know, yeah. like yeah, um, yeah. I, yeah. I would just say that I think medication saved my life on two occasions. Yeah. So same. Um, mm. I'm medication free now, but um, and yeah, the side, I, side effects I. Some of them I don't really like, but I know that that when you need it, it can really save your life. Mm. Yeah, thanks very much. Mm. Um, our time together is unfortunately drawing to a close, including the extra five minutes that I stole <laughs> at the end. Um, but thank you very much for your questions, and I know they were all very personal, so I, I appreciate that. Um, I will mention those numbers again. You can call 0800 Anxiety, best phone number ever, um, to get connected to services if you're looking for some help. Or you can text 1737 if you just want to talk to someone like right now for a bit of a chat. Um, the authors will be at the signing table just outside. Um, and if you need to grab a book or three or several before you get there, um, the UBS book table is also um, just outside. Um, thank you all so much for coming, especially first thing on a Saturday. And I would love for you all to give our panellists a very big thank you for their generosity and sharing. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation.
If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, here are some ways to get help. The best person to contact is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. 1737-NEED-TO-TALK? Call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 354. Youthline 0800-376-633 or text 234 between 8am and midnight. Depression Helpline 0800 111 and Samaritans 0800 726 666.